So in a moment, Eric's gonna come up and share with us, but to get that process started, we're gonna have Melanie lead us in our scripture reading this morning. It's from 2 Peter. Go ahead and take it away, Melanie. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, just before Jesus went to the cross, and just before he left the earth, he said to his disciples in John 14, and I want to read this for us this morning. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give this peace, but as only God can give. Let not your hearts be troubled, let not your hearts be afraid. Peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. As Jordan mentioned, and as we discussed last week, we're now in the season of Advent, right? And today is the second Sunday of Advent. And as has been mentioned, Advent is this season of waiting. Advent literally means one's arrival. And it's a season where we're continually reminded that we are a people in waiting. In this waiting, we recall the waiting that was done in the past. And it's the season that we are reminded of the waiting that we're currently in. We recall the waiting that was done in the past when the Israelites were waiting for an anointed Messiah, for the anointed one. That waiting came to a head 2,000 years ago, Christmas night. The Old Testament speaks at length of the time when the anointed one of God would come and redeem all of God's people. Right, so... During Advent, we hear from Isaiah, we hear from Samuel, we hear from Jeremiah and others telling us of the promise of the one who would come to redeem all of the Israelites, all of them expecting and waiting for a Messiah to come. Like They all had their own impressions about what that redemption would look like, but they were people in waiting, waiting for the Messiah, until finally on Christmas night, the anointed one of God came, and that season of waiting ended for them. They were a people in waiting, and we remember what that waiting was like for the Israelites. And Advent, we're also reminded of the waiting that we're currently in. The waiting that we're currently in. We, the church, are a people currently in waiting, waiting for the day when Jesus will return to us at some future unknown date, right? Jesus came, he did his earth-shattering work, and ascended into heaven, promising to us that one day he would return. 
So thus during Advent, we hear a lot from Paul, we hear from Peter, we hear from James, discussing the manner in which Jesus will return to us at some future date, not yet known, but someday that it will come. A season of waiting. And so we wait. We remember what that waiting was like. But in addition to this being a season of waiting for the Savior, it's also a season of preparation. In our waiting, we prepare. We prepare our hearts. It's not on us to predict when that day will come, when Jesus returns. But it is on us, however, to prepare our hearts for the day that he does come. Henry Nouwen once said that Advent, he said of Advent, waiting is a period of learning. The longer we wait, the more we hear about him for whom we are waiting. This idea of preparing was a bit of a challenge for the early church. Early on, the church thought that Jesus' return would happen fairly soon. After he departed, they thought that his return would happen within their lifetimes. And at certain points in the early church's writing, you can tell that the writers are dealing and wrestling with the questions that they all have. So a lot of the questions they bring to the early church leaders are things like, hey, we expected this to happen at this point. What has happened to the people that have died? Are they going to experience Jesus' return? What happens if I die? Will I get to experience Jesus' return? How is this all going to work out? What's this return going to look like? So they had to wrestle with that question a lot. And so thus you hear in 2 Peter, our reading this morning, the author tries to reassure them that they haven't missed anything. He tries to reassure them and says, Do not overlook the fact that the Lord, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like one day. He is not slow regarding his promise, but is instead patient. That day will come, and it will come as a surprise to all of us. We are in a period of waiting. But as he works to reassure them, he tries to encourage them to think differently. He tries them to think of the state of their own hearts. He tries to redirect them from, from being overeager about when the day will come, and instead he challenges them. And he says to them, since these things are to be, since we are in this period of waiting, the question is, what sort of people ought we to become? Who are we to become as we wait? Who ought we to be? And that's the tension we find ourselves in Advent. Remembering the waiting, the past, the present, and the future. But preparing our hearts for Jesus' return by asking ourselves that very difficult question. Who ought we to be? Who ought we to become? That's what we try to navigate during Advent. That's the question we try to answer. Who ought we to become in, our, and in this period of waiting? How do we prepare our hearts for Jesus' return? The challenge with trying to answer the question of who ought we to be or where do we want to see ourselves go, is that first we need to take stock of where we're at now, right? Where are we at currently? Can't find out where we're going until first we ask, where are we now? What have we become? What have we faced? What challenges have we endured? And what kind of people has it made us into? When I think about 
where we're at now, trying to answer where we're going, I can't help but think of 2020, right? 2020 has been an insane and crazy year. And the challenges that we've all faced have been incredible. I certainly don't want to speak for everyone. And I don't want to assume to know everyone's struggles, right? Because we've all experienced this year in completely different ways. But, if I th but I think I can say one thing, and I feel like I can say it comfortably, is that 2020 has been a wrecking ball of chaos. It has just been chaotic. One thing after another. To summarize the challenges that we've all faced, and you all know them, there's no news here, right? We've had COVID. We've had economic collapse. We've had levels of unemployment never seen before. We've come face to face with the racial inequalities that exist in this country. We've experienced civil unrest, all while going through an intensely divisive election. I'm almost 40 and I don't think I've seen a lot in this world, but I can say that this is the most tumultuous year I've ever experienced in my entire life. And yeah, it has affected me at every turn. And I imagine maybe it's affected all of you. If I can describe how this year has made me feel and maybe has made other people feel, I would describe it by saying this year's events has constantly threatened our sense of well-being, right? It's threatened our safety. It's disrupted our sense of wholeness. It's constantly threatened our sense of well-being. We've had threats to our health because of COVID. Threats to our finances because of economic collapse. Threats to our jobs because of unemployment. Threats to our sense of fairness because of racial injustices. Threats to our physical safety because of civil unrest. And threats to our sense of community because of the deeply embedded partisan identities that exist within this country. 2020 has brought constant threats to our sense of well-being. And so back to that question, where are we now? We have been constantly challenged, constantly bombarded by things that make us feel unsafe, constantly threatened. And we've all come face to face with it. Maybe more of us, more so than others. We've all experienced these threats one way or another. And that stuff affects us. That stuff hits us hard. And it's very easy to internalize that stuff. Right? In fact, doctors and psychologists did a study on the effect of negative experiences to positive experiences. And they say that in your brain, there are separate systems for negative and positive stimuli. Right? So bear with me here. When experiences arise, they found that negative stimuli actually produces more neural activity than po equally positive charged ones. And in the process, they say, negative events and experiences get quickly stored in our memories in contrast to positive experience, which usually need to be held in awareness for a dozen more seconds for it to transfer from short-term memory to long-term memory. These negative experiences, these threats to our sense of well-being, they hit us, and it's easy to internalize it. And I think that's where a lot of us are. I don't think it's a, too much of an assumption to think that's where we are. Feeling threats to our sense of well-being, our sense of wholeness. By no fault of our own, right? No one has any control over any of these events we've experienced. But I think that's where we are. But... 
Who ought we to be? Who ought we to become? And the question we ask in Advent as we wait and prepare our hearts for Jesus' return, who should we become? I am reminded, encouraged, and warmed in my heart when I remember the words Jesus gave us before he ascended into heaven when he said, My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. This peace I give, not as the world gives, but as God gives, as only God could. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be afraid. My peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. That is who God asks us to be. And it's who we ought to become. A people of peace. A people of peace, because that's the gift God gives us. The gift of peace. And we can live in that peace because the world and all its threats cannot overcome the work that God has done and the kingdom that God has established through Christ. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. My peace I give to you in only a way that God can give and no others. And nothing on this earth can take that from you. Because in Christ, God has conquered all things, restored all things, and is in the process of renewing all things. Right? Now, I need to say, I'm certainly not saying we should be dismissive of those threats or disregard the precautions that are needed for, for, for those threats. But be encouraged. Be lifted up by Jesus' words when he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be afraid. Because the threats of this world have no power over you. Be not afraid. Instead, be at peace. Be at peace. Those are the words God has for us in response to this year, I think. Second Peter goes on to say, Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, while you are waiting for him in the day of the Lord to come, Strive to be found by him at peace. Strive to be found by him at peace. The Greek word for peace is called arena. And it's used often in the ancient Greek to describe the state of relationship between two parties that lacks conflict, right? That's something we're kind of all familiar with. But in the context of the New Testament, it means something completely different. One translator described the Greek New Testament's usage of arena as a state of tranquility within a person's soul because of the assured reconciliation one has with God through Christ. And because of that, fear is nothing and is content with their earthly context, whatever that may be, a state of tranquility within a person's soul, fearing nothing and content with their earthly context because of their faith in the presence of God and the work that God has done through Christ. Another way to think of peace is the way Jesus thought of it, which is the Hebrew context for peace, and some of us may be familiar with this term. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom, a commonly used word in the Old Testament. And used still to this day. It's used extensively in the Old Testament, and again, it has similar meaning to the Greek, which is 
it relates to two parties not being in conflict. But the deeper usage in the Old Testament is just to be an overall blessing. I hope the health of your family is shalom. God, shalom go with you. Seek shalom in everything you do and with everyone you know. Shalom, completeness within your being, soundness within your soul. That is what it meant to Jesus when he gave it to his disciples. My shalom I give to you. My shalom I leave with you. And I think Jesus' invitation just before he ascended into heaven is to accept that gift and to become a people of peace. I think that is who we ought to become as we wait and prepare this Advent season. There's some, some practices we can consider as we work towards becoming a people of peace in this season of waiting and preparation. And it, it's not overly complex, right? I was worried they weren't substantive enough, but Jordan was encouraging to think, hey, this might be exactly what we need to hear. Two very simple practices. And my, life, my wife loves the alliteration here. Give grace and make space. Give grace, make space. Give grace. When I say give grace, it means so much more than just learning to forgive each other, which I think is what grace is often associated with. But, giving grace, but give grace in the same way Jesus did, which I think means learning to honor people's personhood. Honoring people's personhood. Whether you agree or disagree with someone you're in a relationship, that person, whoever they may be, has an inestimable value, an unquantifiable worth, in the eyes of God. So, young or old, black or white, rich or poor, COVID conscious or COVID suspicious, police officer or civilian, Republican or Democrat, God places an inestimable value on the human person and God has done so throughout all time. Honoring people's personhood. And when we think of other people that way as having a value too great to calculate, especially with those we're often at odds with, it helps dispel any unhealthy perspective we may have of others and helps to reinforce the value of human equality in the same way that Jesus held, a value of human equality. With that in the back of our mind, it makes it a bit easier to dialogue, makes it a bit easier to show respect, to have compassion, to relate to others, makes it a bit easier to not hold other people in contempt because of some worldly or social label makes it a bit easier to give people the benefit of the doubt, even if you disagree, because maybe from that perspective, you might be able to relate that their motives are similar to yours. Maybe they just have different answers. Giving grace means honoring people's personhood. Making space. To become a people of peace, we need to practice giving grace, but also continually strive to make space. Another way to think of making space is being intentional about creating and dwelling in community. Creating and dwelling in community. Of all the things I think that Jesus accomplished in his time on earth, one thing that sometimes gets lost, I think, that is supremely important to Jesus is the establishment of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The word kingdom can throw us off a bit. That word can conjure up images of crowns or castles or medieval perceptions of community. But the kingdom of God on earth is meant to convey the reality that through Jesus, God has come to make a dwelling with the people of earth. Through Jesus, God has come to be with us, to establish indefinite relationality, 
to establish community. To be a people of peace, it's incumbent upon us to make space for that community, to dwell in that relationality. That means making space for God, making space for that relationality, for making space for that community in prayer, in silence, in quiet, just recalling and remembering the presence of God near to you in everything you face. Making space for family, remembering and honoring people's personhood, remembering giving grace. I know we all have a lot of differences with our family members these days, but going in, creating community with family and honoring people's dignity Expressing that compassion, expressing that love, and giving back that grace in the same way that you experience it with God. And dwelling in community with our worshiping community, right? I am so grateful for the work that Jordan and the entire staff have done this season. It has been a service and a joy to my family during this challenging year. And it has helped us experience the grace that God gives us and the presence that God has there for us giving grace and making space to become a people of peace. And so I'll close here. As we go through this Advent season, the season of waiting and preparation, and as we ask this question of who ought we to be, we ought to be a people of peace because that is the gift God has for us. Amen. I want to take a moment to lead us into a time of prayer. And just remember that as challenging as this year has been, and as difficult as it's been to to put aside some of the things that we've been confronted with, to, to put aside the chaos, to put aside the threats and not internalize them, God always comes back to us, God always makes space for us, and God is always giving us grace to help deal with those things. So let's take a moment and pray this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.